0: Chapter 19, Part 1 of a Diary from Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Laurie Ann Walden. A Diary from Dixie by Mary Chestnut. Chapter 19, Lincoln, North Carolina, February 16, 1865, to March 15, 1865, Part 1. Lincoln, North Carolina, February 16, 1865. A change has come o'er the spirit of my dream. Dear old choir of yellow, coarse, confederate, homemade paper, here you are again. An age of anxiety and suffering has passed over my head since last I wrote and wept over your forlorn pages. My ideas of those last days are confused. The Martins left Columbia the Friday before I did, and Mammy, the negro woman who had nursed them, refused to go with them. That daunted me. Then Mrs. McCord, who was to send her girls with me, changed her mind. She sent them upstairs in her house, and actually took away the staircase. That was her plan. Then I met Mr. Christopher Hampton, arranging to take off his sisters. They were flitting, but were to go only as far as Yorkville. He said it was time to move on. Sherman was at Orangeburg, barely a day's journey from Columbia, and had left a track as bare and blackened as a fire leaves on the prairies. So my time had come, too. My husband urged me to go home. He said Camden would be safe enough. They had no spite against that old town, as they have against Charleston and Columbia. Molly, weeping and wailing, came in while we were at table. Wiping her red-hot face with the cook's grimy apron, she said, I ought to go among our own black people on the plantation. They would take care of me better than any one else. So I agreed to go to Mulberry, or the Hermitage plantation, and sent Lawrence down with a wagon-load of my valuables. Then a Miss Patterson called, a refugee from Tennessee. She had been in a country overrun by Yankee invaders, and she described so graphically all the horrors to be endured by those subjected to fire and sword, rapine and plunder, that I was fairly scared, and determined to come here. This is a thoroughly out-of-all-roots place. And yet I can go to Charlotte, am halfway to Kate at Flat Rock, and there is no Federal army between me and Richmond." As soon as my mind was finally made up, we telegraphed to Lawrence, who had barely got to Camden in the wagon when the telegram was handed to him, so he took the train and came back. Mr. Chestnut sent him with us to take care of the party. We thought that if the negroes were ever so loyal to us, they could not protect me from an army bent upon sweeping us from the face of the earth, and if they tried to do so, so much the worse would it be for the poor things with their Yankee friends.' I then left them to shift for themselves, as they are accustomed to do, and I took the same liberty. My husband does not care a fig for the property question, and never did. Perhaps if he had ever known poverty it would be different. He talked beautifully about it, as he always does about everything. I have told him often that if at Heaven's Gate St. Peter would listen to him a while, and let him tell his own story, he would get in, and the angels might give him a crown extra." Now he says he has only one care, that I should be safe, and not so harassed with dread. And then there is his blind old father. A man, said he, can always die like a patriot and a gentleman, with no fuss, and take it coolly. It is hard not to envy those who are out of all this, their difficulties ended, those who have met death gloriously on the battlefield, their doubts all solved. One can but do his best, and leave the result to a higher power. After New Orleans, those vain, passionate, impatient little Creoles were forever committing suicide, driven to it by despair and Beast Butler. As we read these things, Mrs. Davis said, If they want to die, why not first kill Beast Butler, rid the world of their foe, and be saved the trouble of murdering themselves? That practical way of removing their intolerable burden did not occur to them. I repeated this suggestive anecdote to our corps of generals without troops here in the house, as they spread out their maps on my table where lay this choir of paper from which I write. Every man jack of them had a safe plan to stop Sherman, if. Even Beauregard and Lee were expected, but Grant had double-teamed on Lee. Lee could not save his own. How could he come to save us? Read the list of the dead and those last battles around Richmond and Petersburg if you want to break your heart. Footnote. Battles at Hatchin's Run in Virginia had been fought on February 5, 6, and 7, 1865. End footnote. I took French leave of Columbia, slipped away without a word to anybody. Isaac Hayne and Mr. Chestnut came down to the Charlotte Depot with me. Ellen, my maid, left her husband and only child, but she was willing to come, and indeed was very cheerful in her way of looking at it. "'I won't travel round with Mrs. some time, stead o' Molly goin' all the time.'" A woman, fifty years old at least, and uglier than she was old, sharply rebuked my husband for standing at the car window for a last few words with me. She said rudely, "'Stand aside, sir. I won't air.'" With his hat off and his grand air, my husband bowed politely and said, "'In one moment, madam, "'I have something important to say to my wife.'" She talked aloud and introduced herself to every man claiming his protection. She had never traveled alone before in all her life. Old age and ugliness are protective in some cases. She was ardently patriotic for a while. Then she was joined by her friend, a man as crazy as herself, to get out of this. From their talk I gleaned she had been for years in the Treasury Department. They were about to cross the lines. The whole idea was to get away from the trouble to come down here. They were Yankees, but were they not spies? Here I am, broken-hearted and an exile, and in such a place. We have bare floors, and for a feather bed, pine table, and two chairs I pay thirty dollars a day. Such sheets! But fortunately I have some of my own. At the door, before I was well out of the hack, the woman of the house packed Lawrence back, neck and heels. She would not have him at any price. She treated him as Mr. F.'s aunt did Clinman in Little Dorrit. She said his clothes were too fine for a nigger. His airs, indeed. Poor Lawrence was humble and silent. He said at last, Miss Mary, send me back to Mars Jeems. I began to look for a pencil to write a note to my husband, but in the flurry could not find one. "'Here is one,' said Lawrence, producing one with a gold case. "'Go away,' she shouted. "'I want no niggers here with gold pencils and airs.' To Lawrence fled before the storm, but not before he had begged me to go back. "'He said, "'If Ma's Jeems knew how you was treated, he'd never be willin' for you to stay here.' "'The Martins had seen my, to them, well-known travelling case as the hack trotted up Main Street.' and they arrived at this juncture out of breath. We embraced and wept. I kept my room. The Fants are refugees here, too. They are Virginians, and have been in exile since the Second Battle of Manassas. Poor things, they seem to have been everywhere, and seen and suffered everything. They even tried to go back to their own house, but found one chimney only standing alone. Even that had been taken possession of by a Yankee, who had written his name upon it. The day I left home I had packed a box of flour, sugar, rice, and coffee, but my husband would not let me bring it. He said I was coming to a land of plenty, unexplored North Carolina, where the foot of the Yankee marauder was unknown, and in Columbia they would need food. Now I have written for that box, and many other things, to be sent me by Lawrence, or I shall starve. The Middletons have come. How joyously I sprang to my feet to greet them. "'Mrs. Ben Rutledge described the hubbub in Columbia. "'Everybody was flying in every direction like a flock of swallows. "'She heard the enemy's guns booming in the distance. "'The train no longer runs from Charlotte to Columbia. "'Miss Middleton possesses her soul in peace. "'She is as cool, clever, rational, and entertaining as ever, and we talked for hours. "'Mrs. Reed was in a state of despair.' I can well understand that sinking of mind and body during the first days, as the abject misery of it all closes in upon you. I remember my suicidal tendencies when I first came here. FEBRUARY 18th. Here I am, thank God, settled at the Maclean's, in a clean, comfortable room, airy and cosy. With a grateful heart I stir up my own bright wood-fire. My bill for four days at this splendid hotel here was two hundred and forty dollars, with twenty-five dollars additional for fire. But once more my lines have fallen in pleasant places. As we came up on the train from Charlotte, a soldier took out of his pocket a filthy rag. If it had lain in the gutter for months, it could not have looked worse. He unwrapped the thing carefully, and took out two biscuits of the species known as hardtack. Then he gallantly handed me one and with an ingratiating smile asked me to take some. Then he explained, saying, Please take these two, swap with me. Give me something softer that I can eat. I am very weak still. Immediately, for his benefit, my basket of luncheon was emptied. But as for his biscuit, I would not choose any. Isabella asked, But what did you say to him when he poked them under your nose? And I replied, I held up both hands, saying, I would not take from you anything that is yours, far from it. I would not touch them for worlds. A tremendous day's work, and I helped with a will. Our window-glass was all to be washed. Then the brass andirons were to be polished. After we rubbed them bright, how pretty they were. Presently Ellen would have none of me. She was scrubbing the floor. You go, that's a good missus, and stay to Miss Isabella's till the floor dry. I am very docile now, and I obeyed orders. February 19th. The fants say all the trouble at the hotel came from our servants bragging. They represented us as millionaires, and the Middleton men-servants smoked cigars. Mrs. Reeds averred that he had never done anything in his life but stand behind his master at table with a silver waiter in his hand. We were charged accordingly, but perhaps the landlady did not get the best of us after all, for we paid her in Confederate money. Now that they won't take Confederate money in the shops here, how are we to live? Miss Middleton says, Quartermaster's families are all clad in good grey cloth, but the soldiers go naked. Well, we are like the families of whom the novels always say they are poor, but honest. Poor? "'Well-nigh beggars are we, for I do not know where my next meal is to come from. "'Called on Mrs. Ben Rutledge to-day. "'She is lovely, exquisitely refined. "'Her mother, Mrs. Middleton, came in. "'You are not looking well, dear. Anything the matter?' "'No, but, Mamma, I have not eaten a mouthful to-day. "'The children can eat mush. I can't. "'I drank my tea, however.' She does not understand taking favors, and, blushing violently, refused to let me have Ellen make her some biscuit. I went home and sent her some biscuit all the same. February 22nd. Isabella has been reading my diaries. How we laugh because my sage divinations all come to naught. My famous insight into character is utter folly. The diaries were lying on the hearth ready to be burned, but she told me to hold on to them. Think of them a while, and don't be rash. Afterward, when Isabella and I were taking a walk, General Joseph E. Johnston joined us. He explained to us all of Lee's and Stonewall Jackson's mistakes. We had nothing to say. How could we say anything? He said he was very angry when he was ordered to take command again. He might well have been in a genuine rage. This on and off procedure would be enough to bewilder the coolest head. Mrs. Johnston knows how to be a partisan of Joe Johnston, and still not make his enemies uncomfortable. She can be pleasant and agreeable, as she was to my face. A letter from my husband, who is at Charlotte. He came near being taken a prisoner in Columbia, for he was asleep the morning of the 17th, when the Yankees blew up the railroad depot. That woke him, of course, and he found everybody had left Columbia, and the town was surrendered by the mayor, Colonel Goodwin." Hampton and his command had been gone several hours. Isaac Hayne came away with General Chestnut. There was no fire in the town when they left. They overtook Hampton's command at Meek's Mill. That night, from the hills where they encamped, they saw the fire, and knew the Yankees were burning the town, as we had every reason to expect they would. Molly was left in charge of everything of mine, including Mrs. Preston's cow, which I was keeping, and Sally Goodwin's furniture. Charleston and Wilmington have surrendered. I have no further use for a newspaper. I never want to see another one as long as I live. Wade Hampton has been made a lieutenant general, too late. If he had been made one and given command in South Carolina six months ago, I believe he would have saved us. Shame, disgrace, beggary, all have come at once and are hard to bear. The grand smash. "'Rain, rain outside, and naught but drowning floods of tears inside. "'I could not bear it, so I rushed down in that rainstorm to the Martins. "'Reverend Mr. Martin met me at the door. "'Madam,' said he, "'Columbia is burned to the ground.' "'I bowed my head and sobbed aloud. "'Stop that,' he said, trying to speak cheerfully. "'Come here, wife,' said he to Mrs. Martin." This woman cries with her whole heart, just as she laughs. But in spite of his words, his voice broke down, and he was hardly calmer than myself. February 23rd. I want to get to Kate. I am so utterly heartbroken. I hope John Chestnut and General Chestnut may at least get into the same army. We seem scattered over the face of the earth. Isabella sits there, calmly reading. I HAVE QUIETED DOWN AFTER THE DAY'S RAMPAGE. MAY OUR HEAVENLY FATHER LOOK DOWN ON US AND HAVE PITY. THEY SAY I WAS THE LAST REFUGEE FROM COLUMBIA WHO WAS ALLOWED TO ENTER BY THE DOOR OF THE CARS. THE GOVERNMENT TOOK POSSESSION, THEN, AND WOMEN COULD ONLY BE SMUGGLED IN BY THE WINDOWS. STOUT ones STUCK AND HAD TO BE PUSHED, PULLED, AND HAULED IN BY MAIN FORCE. DEAR MRS. IZARD, WITH ALL HER DIGNITY, WAS SUBJECTED TO THIS ROUGH TREATMENT. She was found almost too much for the size of the car-windows. February twenty-fifth, The Pfeifers, who live opposite us here, are descendants of those Pfeifers who came south with Mr. Chestnut's ancestors after the Fort Duquesne disaster. They have now, therefore, been driven out of their Eden, the Valley of Virginia, a second time. The present Pfeifer is the great man, the rich man par excellence of Lincolnton. They say that, with something very near to tears in his eyes, he heard of our latest defeats. "'It is only a question of time with us now,' he said. "'The Raiders will come, you know.' In Washington, before I knew any of them except by sight, Mrs. Davis, Mrs. Emory, and Mrs. Johnston were always together, inseparable friends, and the trio were pointed out to me as the cleverest women in the United States. Now that I do know them all well, I think the world was right in his estimate of them. Met a Mr. Ancrum of serenely cheerful aspect, happy and hopeful. All right, now, said he. Sherman sure to be thrashed. Joe Johnston is in command. Dr. Darby says, when the oft-mentioned Joseph, the malcontent, gave up his command to Hood, he remarked with a smile, I hope you will be able to stop Sherman. It was more than I could do. General Johnston is not of Mr. Ancrum's way of thinking as to his own powers, for he stayed here several days after he was ordered to the front. He must have known he could do no good, and I am of his opinion. When the wagon in which I was to travel to Flat Rock drove up to the door, covered with a tent-like white cloth, in my embarrassment for an opening in the conversation, I asked the driver's name. He showed great hesitation in giving it, but at last said, "'My name is Sherman.' adding, "'And now I see by your face that you won't go with me. My name is against me these times.' Here he grinned and remarked, "'But you would leave Lincolnton.' That name was the last drop in my cup, but I gave him Mrs. Glover's reason for staying here. General Johnston had told her this might be the safest place after all. He thinks the Yankees are making straight for Richmond and General Lee's rear, and will go by Camden and Lancaster, leaving Lincolnton on their west flank.' The Maclean's are kind people. They ask no rent for their rooms, only twenty dollars a week for firewood." Twenty dollars! And such dollars! Mere waste paper. Mrs. Monroe took up my photograph-book, in which I have a picture of all the Yankee generals. "'I want to see the men who are to be our masters,' said she. Not mine,' I answered. Thank God, come what may. This was a free fight. We had as much right to fight to get out as they had to fight to keep us in. If they try to play the masters, anywhere upon the habitable globe will I go, never to see a Yankee, and if I die on the way, so much the better." Then I sat down and wrote to my husband in language much worse than anything I can put in this book. As I wrote, I was blinded by tears of rage. Indeed, I nearly wept myself away. February 26. Mrs. Monroe offered me religious books, which I had declined, being already provided with the lamentations of Jeremiah, the Psalms of David, the denunciations of Hosea, and, above all, the patient wail of Job. Job is my comforter now. I should be so thankful to know life would never be any worse with me. My husband is well, and has been ordered to join the great retreater. I am bodily comfortable, if somewhat dingily lodged, and I daily part with my raiment for food. We find no one who will exchange eatables for Confederate money, so we are devouring our clothes. Opportunities for social enjoyment are not wanting. Miss Middleton and Isabella often drink a cup of tea with me. One might search the whole world and not find two cleverer or more agreeable women. Miss Middleton is brilliant and accomplished. She must have been a hard student all her life. She knows everybody worth knowing, and she has been everywhere then she is so high-bred, high-hearted, pure and true. She is so clean-minded, she could not harbour a wrong thought. She is utterly unselfish, a devoted daughter and sister. She is one among the many large-brained women a kind Providence has thrown in my way, such as Mrs. McCord, daughter of Judge Chevis, Mary Preston Darby, Mrs. Emery, granddaughter of old Franklin, the American wise man, and Mrs. Jefferson Davis. How I love to praise my friends! As a ray of artificial sunshine, Mrs. Monroe sent me an examiner. Daniel thinks we are at the last gasp, and now England and France are bound to step in. England must know if the United States of America are triumphant, they will tackle her next, and France must wonder if she will not have to give up Mexico. My faith fails me. It is all too late. No help for us now from God or man. Thomas, Daniel says, was now to ravage Georgia, but Sherman, from all accounts, has done that work once for all. There will be no aftermath. They say no living thing is found in Sherman's track, only chimneys, like telegraph poles, to carry the news of Sherman's army backward. In all that tropical downpour, Mrs. Monroe sent me overshoes and an umbrella, with the message, Come over. I went for it would be as well to drown in the streets as to hang myself at home to my own bedpost at Mrs Monroe's I met a Miss McDaniel her father for seven years was the methodist preacher at our negro church the negro church is in a grove just opposite mulberry house she says her father has so often described that fine old establishment and its beautiful lawn live oaks etc now i dare say there stand at mulberry only sherman sentinels stacks of chimneys. We have made up our minds for the worst. Mulberry House is, no doubt, raised to the ground. Miss McDaniel was inclined to praise us. She said, As a general rule, the Episcopal minister went to the family mansion, and the Methodist missionary preached to the Negroes, and dined with the overseer at his house. But at Mulberry her father always stayed at the house, and the family were so kind and attentive to him. It was rather pleasant to hear one's family so spoken of among strangers. So, well equipped to brave the weather, armed cap-a-pe, so to speak, I continued my prowl farther afield, and brought up at the Middletons. I may have surprised them, for, at such an inclement season, they hardly expected a visitor. Never, however, did lonely old woman receive such a warm and hearty welcome. Now we know the worst. Are we growing hardened?' We avoid all allusion to Columbia, we never speak of home, and we begin to deride the certain poverty that lies ahead. How it pours! Could I live many days in solitary confinement? Things are beginning to be unbearable, but I must sit down and be satisfied. My husband is safe so far. Let me be thankful it is no worse with me. But there is the gnawing pain all the same. What is the good of being here at all? Our world has simply gone to destruction, and across the way the fair Lydia languishes. She has not even my resources against ennui. She has no Isabella, no Miss Middleton, two as brilliant women as any in Christendom. Oh, how does she stand it? I mean to go to church if it rains cats and dogs. My feet are wet two or three times a day. We never take cold. Our hearts are too hot within us for that. A carriage was driven up to the door as I was riding. I began to tie on my bonnet, and said to myself in the glass, "'Oh, you lucky woman!' I was all in a tremble, so great was my haste to be out of this. Mrs. Glover had the carriage. She came for me to go and hear Mr. Martin preach. He lifts our spirits from this dull earth. He takes us up to heaven. That I will not deny.' Still, he cannot hold my attention. My heart wanders, and my mind strays back to South Carolina. Oh, Vandal Sherman, what are you at there, hard-hearted wretch that you are? A letter from General Chestnut, who writes from camp near Charlotte under date of February 28th. I thank you a thousand, thousand times for your kind letters. They are now my only earthly comfort, except the hope that all is not yet lost. We have been driven like a wild herd from our country and it is not from a want of spirit in the people or soldiers, nor from want of energy and competency in our commanders. The restoration of Joe Johnston, it is hoped, will redound to the advantage of our cause and the re-establishment of our fortunes. I am still in not very agreeable circumstances, for the last four days completely water-bound. I am informed that a detachment of Yankees were sent from Liberty Hill to Camden with a view to destroying all the houses, mills, and provisions about that place. No particulars have reached me. You know I expected the worst that could be done, and am fully prepared for any report which may be made. It would be a happiness beyond expression to see you even for an hour. I have heard nothing from my poor old father. I fear I shall never see him again. Such is the fate of war. I do not complain. I have deliberately chosen my lot, and am prepared for any fate that awaits me. My care is for you, and I trust still in the good cause of my country, and the justice and mercy of God." It was a lively, rushing, young set that South Carolina put to the fore. They knew it was a time of imminent danger, and that the fight would be ten to one. They expected to win by activity, energy, and enthusiasm. Then came the wet blanket, the croakers. Now these are posing, wrapping Caesar's mantle about their heads to fall with dignity. Those gallant youths who dashed so gaily to the front lie mostly in bloody graves. Well for them, maybe. There are worse things than honorable graves. Weary thoughts. Late in life we are to begin anew and have laborious, difficult days ahead. We have contradictory testimony. Governor Aiken has passed through, saying Sherman left Columbia as he found it, and was last heard from at Sheraw. Dr. Chisholm walked home with me. He says that is the last version of the story. Now, my husband wrote that he himself saw the fires which burned up Columbia. The first night his camp was near enough to the town for that. They say Sherman has burned Lancaster. That Sherman nightmare, that ghoul, that hyena. But I do not believe it. He takes his time. There are none to molest him. He does things leisurely and deliberately. Why stop to do so needless a thing as burn Lancaster Courthouse, the jail, and the tavern? As I remember it, that description covers Lancaster. A raiding party, they say, did for Camden. No train from Charlotte yesterday. Rumor says Sherman is in Charlotte. End of chapter 19, part 1